So it's seven metres out. Australia needs to try to win the game. Cobain takes the line out. Australia trying to drive ahead. Regan again. And Larkham. Kefu. Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the Running Rugby Podcast. I'm Archie here, joined with Leo, while Toby is still in a pit fill of depression and despair after watching that Wallabies performance over the weekend. But it's another week gone in the Rugby World Cup, and we say goodbye to four more teams. That's right, the Wallabies, Ireland, France, and Japan. The fairy tale ends for them as well, um, and we're down to four left. Leo, what did you think of that weekend? Arch, I, was, I was pretty uh, saddened by the Wallabies' loss, though not surprised. Uh, I, I listened to the pod that you and Toby did doing your predictions, and uh, there was a lot of optimism and positivity from Toby on the Wallabies, and I can't say I, I was in full agreement when, mm. when I was listening back. So, um, yeah, I sort of expected uh, the loss, if not the way it occurred. Um, and for the other teams... Mostly as expected, the French lifting and uh, being that surprise packet who can really turn it on and I think really let themselves down. They they could have won that game. Yeah. Um, a couple of things that they that they did that really gave the the Welsh a huge advantage. Obviously the red card uh, and the loss of Intermac uh, after half time that was that was a problem for them too. The Japan yeah the fairy tale ends. The Japanese again so strong so willing. And just really impressive, like not daunted at all by the Tarskis. They, they've got the recent history mm. at, a, at the previous World Cup against the South Africans. So that would have been, you know, really, really trying to funnel uh, that that feeling back back into this game. And unfortunate, you know, it's sad to see them go out. But I do have South Africa tipped as the favourite in my mind um, from pr- prior to the Cup starting. So I always thought they'd go through well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so... Good viewing all around. A uh, little bit of referee business that I'm sure we'll mention. Um, but but overall, I think a, a pretty reasonable weekend of games. All right, let's, let's dive into... We'll start with the Wallabies England. As you said, we did have some optimism from Toby around the new sort of selections. The new centre pairing with Karevi and Pattaya are in there at 12 and 13. But they go down 40 to 16. And I don't think it was that... That seemed actually reasonably strong in this whole game. But what was it that let the Wallabies down in this? Look, I think the English were definitely up for this match. They were very physical. Uh, we matched them for a while, but at these defensive structures, we just seemed to to concede space out wide, and England profited on that really early uh, with Johnny May going over for a couple of tries in the corner in quick succession. Um, the... The disappointing thing is that I feel like this has happened to us a lot. We've been outflanked. We've missed one-on-one tackles. We haven't got the second line of defense coming across in coverage. And, and we've just given up easy-ish looking points. Like it, it, It's not a particularly complicated attacking strategy. Go, mm. go across the field in two phases, stretch us, and we just can't seem to cover it. So pretty disappointing to, to give up a lead early and easily. Uh, I, it, one of the things I remember hearing Toby talking about was 
you know, he's very excited for Jordan Patea coming in the centres. And to be honest, I was really quite excited too. I have big raps on Jordan Patea. I think he's going to be a huge part of the Wallabies' future, a huge part of the Reds next year, and, and already would have been but for injury. I really wish we'd been able to blood this centres combination through the Reds this season and, and potentially into the Wallabies. It's obviously been a, a combination that's been in flux for some time between Karevi, Kurandrani, O'Connor. You know, we've had people filling in there. Tamua coming in at 12. It's never been settled. Similarly to the 9-10, I just don't think that ever was going to bode well for the Wallabies. So those backline combinations, you know, do we think we had a world-class 10 in this World Cup tournament? I can't say that I believe we did. I think Christian did an amazing job uh, considering the journey he's been on. But just, you know, lack of time, another another year for him to really settle into that role and build combinations would, would probably have been ideal. Just just the amount of change we went through, I, I just don't think we were quite as composed in those challenging moments like the English. Yeah, in the end, it did look a bit like a top two, three team in the world versus sort of that top six seven team in the world um it really showed and i mean the stats just had the wallabies if you just look at the stats they were all over the english look 64 percent possession 60 percent territory we had double the meters they had we had double the carries they had we had more defenders beaten more clean breaks more offloads but couldn't break the actual english defense enough to actually get over the line we managed those semi-breaks and stuff, but England were always there covering. And it it just looked like we we sort of ran out of ideas fairly early on and just tried to keep going with the same tactics over and over again. And that's one of my criticisms of the Wallabies that I don't think Checkers' uh, attacking master plan has really come off. There's been a lot of commentary from from all the usual sources about Checker now that he's uh, put, his, put his hand up and said, I'm not going to seek uh, an extended contract uh, he's gonna he's gonna take the fall in some ways for this but a lot of the players have a lot of good things to say about him I I just think maybe it's the it was the wrong attacking plan um, maybe it wasn't embedded that well in this group of players I think a big part of that is the amount of turnover there's a bit of injury um, difficulty in there but but overall I've, I've been unhappy with the amount of change in players over time at times not picking who I think were the form players. And so when those guys came into the selections, it was sort of too little too late. Mm. So just overall, in for the Wallabies' journey in the World Cup, who was your sort of standout player for them, player for the future to focus on? Player for the future, look, I know he's not in Australia next year, but Samu Karevi, just such a dominant player, and it's it's really sad to see him go. Um, he, he could have had this great combination with Jordan Patea, for years at the Reds, um, if Patea had been uh, healthy this season, but also if he'd been managed to be signed for the coming years, um, I hope we see him back. He's had a he's had a pretty good World Cup, even though his his um, busting, bustling, ta- um, attacking style has been called into question very unfairly. So, so in the back, certainly Samu Karevi, and I can't wait to see him back in Australian rugby whenever that happens. Uh, for the forward side of things. Uh, I'm still pretty excited to have Izzy Nyasarani locking down that eight. He's mm. just such a workhorse and a player I think we can build around for the future. Uh, obviously, Pocock out of the picture. Hooper's still on a long contract. I think Izzy Nyasarani is going to hold that eight spot for some time. And it, it will be interesting to see what style of six we then pick to complement those two. 
Uh, we've we're not trying to contest between the two fetches and finding someone else to carry a lot of ball at eight. We've got Nizzi, we've got Hooper, who's going to come at number six. I, th- I think Nasirani's in for the long haul. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with Nasirani. He's just gone from really strength to strength and been so consistent throughout this whole year since he's pulled on that gold jersey. For me, especially standing up in uh, some of the bigger games, and I think in this England game as well, I think I'm really impressed with what Tolu's managed to do coming from a very, look, a year that was had a lot of what controversy in it, um, a lot of question marks over his head, and I think this is probably the best thing we can say about what think what Checker can do as a coach, and that's turning some of these sort of guys that have a bit more trouble concentrating, a little bit discipline issues. We saw it early on when he was at the Tars, bringing Beal back and putting him back on a bit more of a stable path, and I think he's done it with Tolu in this World Cup because it, for that first half an hour, Tolu was immense. He was making a hazard of himself in every ruck. He was chop, well, he was chopping down players close to chop tackles at times, but obviously enough that he wasn't getting penalised. And the set piece was maintaining quite strong with that as well. So I think Tolu's going to hang around. I just hope that uh, off the field sort of dramas can be kept to a minimum with him as well. Yeah, we fare well to senior players, but I think the the focus is on those guys who are hanging around and now have another four-year cycle to really find another level, find that uh, elite level of play. Uh, I'm always going on to you guys about how much talent the Reds have managed to bank in. I think they're going to be the form team um, Mm. or the team to keep an eye on in coming super seasons. They've just locked in such a good core of players and a lot of those guys have been in and around this squad. You've got Rodder, you've got um, Taniella, uh, you've got obviously James O'Connor and Jordan Patea, just to name a few. And they've kept so many of those guys in in their broader squad. A lot of the up-and-coming guys like People like Isaac Lucas, just name one. I think Fraser McWright's in there as yep, well. That's right. Um, lots of really great young talent. Like, just can't wait to see that team develop in the next four years. And it'll be, you know, we'll see what what coaching group comes together after the Checker era. And I just hope it's it's gearing up for a style of play that isn't a style of rugby that isn't afraid to throw the ball around, but still. Um, prides itself on some really aggressive, fast defence because that was something that we saw in these other games. Um, some of these teams bring such a ferocious uh, and fast defensive line, it just really kills off other teams' attacking mm. opportunities. We'll talk about England a bit more when we talk about their uh, semi-final sort of preview. Um, let's move on to New Zealand Ireland, and this was another bit of a thumping from... Um, one of these top teams in the world. But Ireland obviously came in with the number one ranking, um, but they just couldn't stand up to this uh, New Zealand team. I think the Kiwis were very fired up when they had the Irish crowd drowning out their haka at the start of the game. And I think they started fast, they started hard, and they never really looked back. 46-14, um, Ireland only really getting into this game late. Very, and very interesting for a team which was playing so well 12 months ago, um, whether this is a you know the, the peaking early storyline, did they did they do something in the build up to this World Cup which which caused them to run out of gas? I don't know. I'd, I sort of felt that by the time we we'd seen so much of uh, Johnny Sexton and and Carberry, like they seem very predictable, um, and particularly 
Johnny Sexton just just didn't look that dynamic. He he sort of looked like he was going through the motions a bit. He didn't have any explosive pace. Uh, it felt easy to shut him down. I mean, the All Blacks are an excellent team, so you'd expect them to be able to shut down absolutely anybody. But they really they really closed up this Irish back line without Bundiaki, obviously suspended. But but for one player, I don't think that was all the difference. Mm. Um, New Zealand just dominant and and showing that they are the absolute gold standard of rugby in the world at the moment. Yeah, 100%. And Ireland, like, even just looking at the stats, their highest sort of metre gainer was Stockdale on the wing, only with 30 metres total for the match, and no one else eclipsed him. So it's just a defensive, like, masterclass from the Kiwis. They held on to the ball for the majority of that first half, um, only to late giving the Irish a little bit of a uh, go, but really didn't let them get out of their own half and... Yeah, it's just, just dominant, and it's hard to see a way uh, to beat the Kiwis at the moment. Yeah, I, I don't have any answers for that. It's that Their defensive structure is excellent. They, they've always got extra guys covering when, when people are looking like making a break, but they miss, they, they miss or like outright miss so few tackles. They're always slowing a player down, mm. um, even if they don't end up sticking... Like they're just so reliable as individuals in that in that line. Uh, there there isn't a weak spot. They've they've done a great job developing good depth in this squad. They've had guys like Brody Retallick coming in at the right time. New players like Sevu Reese and George Bridge out on the wings, keeping it uh, really solid there too. Uh, this this move with Richie and uh, Bowden with the ten fifteen combo seems mm. to be working. That honestly felt like the most risky thing for the All Blacks to me was that they would go away from a tried and tested 10, 12, 13 combination and mix it up to try and get both these guys on the field. But a player of the of the standard of Bowden Barrett has has found a way to make sure that he hasn't let them down. He's been involved all over the place. He's going to be, going to be really solid there at fullback no matter which team we're playing against. Yeah, you bring up a really good point there as well. And look, we talk about the chopping and changing and the wallabies, but the centre pairings in New Zealand have been... There's been as much changes and different options altogether between having Anton Leonard Brown, Jack Goodhue this weekend. Sonny Bill's been in there. Goodhue's been at 12 at times. Anton Leonard Brown switching between those two. Um, it's been quite a lot of chopping and changing for them as well. And yet their structures are obviously that strong. They're well that well drilled that people just don't ever look like they don't know what they're doing or look like they're out of position. They just all seem to be able to slot in really well and I is that just a good coaching good good drills or is it just uh, a structure that's you know maintained throughout sort of New Zealand super rugby or something that means these guys just are able to continue on when they step up a level yeah I'm not I'm not sure which of one of, of one of those things I would pick out to be the the main factor I'd certainly think that the structure the all blacks have is well understood by a big group a big squad of players um certainly there's more alignment from the super rugby teams to the national teams than say the australians would have but i think it's probably as much you, you look at guys like richie moanga and Bowden. they're on the field and aaron smith as well they're on the field they are talking to their line they're constantly calling guys into position they're confident in what they're doing and they're reading the game so well that they can afford to spend a little bit of their attention just tuning up anyone around them. Mm. And those strong guys in the back line, certainly, and then you've got your leaders in the forwards as well, 
they just they trust each other. They'll listen to directions and reset, you know, as those guys giving the information pass it down the line. And, um, you know, you, you trust if you're coming into the All Blacks, whether you're a mainstay center or um, maybe a Sonny Bill, you sort of in and out a bit. And you come in and you've got Richie and, and Aaron Smith barking at you from inside and Bowden out the back. I mean, what more could you ask for? You've got the leaders there and the, and the visionaries there. Yeah. Um, all you've got to do is get in the line and do what you do best. Mm-hmm. Um, the Australians seem to play this funny structure where we move guys around a lot and, um, you know, the, the, the consistency of the generals hasn't been there. We've had different nines, different tens, uh, some variation in the 15s. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think that's helped. That's that's all just those reps playing together over time. I think that gives them the confidence to just listen to a call, trust the information, and play what's in front of you. Yeah, fair enough. So that that was forty six to fourteen. Ireland going down. Uh, Joe Smith's last hurrah there. He he'll be stepping down from that coaching job as well. So we have two teams out, two coaches gone as well. Um, next we go to the Welsh French game, which probably was well, definitely was the closest of all these. Um, with probably the most controversy as well, as you mentioned before, with the red card. But Wales taking it 20 points to 19. Um, the French started off really hot in this game. Vakatawa out there at outside centre really set the stage for them going forward. Um, as you mentioned, Dupont and Natamak, this is the 9-10 combo, looks like a real winner for France going forward. But this was the biggest comeback uh, for Wales in World Cup history, coming back from 12 points down. Uh, it all got sparked by just a quick turnover and Wainwright scampering across uh, in the 12th minute. And France, just a bit of ill-discipline with that elbow to the face. I was going to bring up for all these games how the refing had sort of shifted away from these heavy penalties, carding in games. But there was not much you could do really with that one, was it? Oh, absolutely not. That's black and white. And in all these things, something that I always remind myself when I see what, what's being dealt out penalty-wise, you've got to remember that they are applying the penalty based on the potential of the infringement. So the Welsh player who got elbowed in the head, you know, he wasn't knocked out. He turned around and called out to the ref. It's like, you know, come on, you're going to let them play like that. So some people say, oh, that wasn't worthy of a red card. Well, if you're going to try and clamp down on players doing just blatant foul play, like completely intentional, disregarding player safety, mm. um, then if, if, you, if you've got to clamp down on that, you've got to hand out the red cards. And so I, I didn't have any issue with that decision. It was a massive call to make in the game, but I think it was 100% correct. And it was reasonably quick to and, and obvious, I guess. They had all the camera angles to make the call. Um, so I wasn't against that. And that really let the French down. Like They, they were valiant after they lost the man and, and we're down to 14 players, I really thought they were still going to hold out. I, I couldn't believe it was happening as I watched it, but I thought they're, they're going to get this. They're going to keep the Welsh out. They haven't quite looked uh, really sort of top gear all game, mm. the Welsh. Uh, they really gave gave the French the opportunity to get the, other, uh, get the upper hand. The French were absolutely brutal in their defence, advancing on the Welsh and, and shutting down any, any play trying to get width. Then we get the controversial call, was that... Um, knocked forward into Welsh hands to score that try. Yeah. On on replays, I think it was very very close to me. I probably if if I had no prior ruling, if I just saw it, I think that's gone forward. The system they have, obviously, if it's been a call on the field and they think it's okay, and then the 
they don't have the angle to be absolutely certain about it. Again, huge call in the in the scheme of the game. I think by the laws that they've written, yeah, you it was fair enough to make that call yeah. without a better camera angle. Although I do believe it probably went forward, um, and it was basically that that decided who went through, and that's what it came down to. So um, the Welsh really were lucky to be within range with that Wainwright breakout. Definitely shows you how big an impact some of the TMOs and refs can have on this um, on matches just with a simple call of saying, I think that went forward or I think it's fine on field decision, try versus no try. And that completely changes uh, semi-final opponents and who goes through to the final four. But France, I think we'd all agree, didn't quite hit their top strap throughout the pool stages. This is probably the best game they did play, but just couldn't quite hold it out enough. Yeah, and, and they were looking great, but let, let themselves down. Um, I can't remember the player's name, but it was the number five, the lock. Um, when he left the field, you can see he was on the on the verge of emotional collapse. He, he knew the significance of, of getting that card. Mm. Um, the guys in that team pulled together really well. They used their subs well. They managed to stay in the fight. Um, disappointing for them to go out like that. In some ways, I feel like in those situations, I know they like to they like to build the rules around trying to you know more points and more tries. But really, in that situation, I would probably have rather seen them say, look. We think we think that's gone forward. Can you check? Because you should have to earn the try, a hundred percent. Not sort of get it and be half half on whether you should have had it at all. I, I would have liked to see kind of the onus on on the on the Welsh to score it, not sort of the the team to take it away. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, still, Welsh get through, and it doesn't matter how you get the win; they get through to the semis, and they'll be playing South Africa, as you mentioned before taking on Japan, and I think this probably had the most entertaining sort of 20 minutes, but that first 20 minutes um, watching this game with Japan throwing the ball around it, all-out attack, trying to stretch the Springboks wide, trying to get over and around their sort of rush defense with some chip kits to the side, not being afraid from even inside their own 22. Um, they were unfortunately let down with a bit of sloppy defense from Yutamura, the 10 with Mapimpi just being able to scamper over for that first try. But South Africa continued to build through, and I think just the size of their men and their ferocity in the second half just continued to wear down Japan, 26-3, winning this one. Yeah, I agree. That Again, the Japan team, valiant in defeat in this contest pretty much the entire way. A few individual uh, efforts probably not quite up to the standard they would hold themselves to. Um, but the, all that sort of creativity to, to do that cross cross field uh, kick early in the game, mm. always keeping some um, surprise plays up their sleeve. When I'll, I'll throw back to the the previous pod when Toby talked about you know Checker maybe keeping things a bit uncertain and and not giving away too much to the opposition. I I don't I don't believe that's what he was doing at all. I think Checker was probably changing his mind regularly and and uncertain who was his best combination. I don't think he was really strategizing to hide anything but the the japanese taking your opportunity to slam toby a little bit while he's not here <laughs> well he's just so optimistic you gotta you gotta level him out at some point that's true that's true no there's Reality. there's a difference if, if anyone if in any sport if anyone says oh they've kept this selection quiet because they don't want to sort of show what they might be doing i don't think the sport any sport is that one-dimensional that that it's going to be that clear. Like you talk about that with cricket and bowlers and, and maybe that, that makes the other team second guess who they should play or, 
But in in rugby, I think you should be playing your best fifteen anytime you think there's a proper contest. And um, anyway, the the Japanese played this game really well. They were fast up in attack. They shut down the South Africans uh, a lot of the time. Mm. They were competitive in all all the set pieces. Um, oh, I don't know if they were the, that competitive. The Lineouts and scrums really started to struggle for them after the first sort of half an hour for the Japanese. That's yeah. So so they were competitive, but I think the fatigue and all the you know think about the amount of adrenaline they've they've been um, generating through all their wins and and their upsets to do it again um, would just take so much energy. And and I think they've done an amazing job and should be really proud of where they got to this time. Uh, I think it was always going to be an impossible task to to beat a team in the quarterfinals of the quality of a South Africa, even though they top their pool. It's it's almost unfortunate that the pool that they would have been playing as runners-up or winners of their pool was this uh, South African-New Zealand pool. That's that's just about the the worst pair of um, opposition yeah. teams I could possibly want. You'd much rather come up against a, a French who are a bit up and down or a Welsh who are a bit um, less dynamic than they had been or a, a Wallabies team that were a bit all over the place would have maybe given them a shot. Yeah, it would be interesting to see what... Uh, Japan versus Wallabies sort of quarterfinal would have lo- looked like because the way they were playing, I'm not sure we would have been able to hold them as well as what the Springboks did. No, it would have been a lot more even. I, I think they were just dynamic enough that they would have given us a real shake. Mm. And it's definitely announced a lot of Japanese players to the world. We've already heard the names like uh, Matsushima, who was everywhere in this game, taking high balls all over the place. Um, again, some... Lenient refereeing, I think, in this one. Uh, first off for the Beast, doing a bit of a tip tackle, dropping a guy almost onto his head, just a yellow for that. And then a couple of challenges in the air where uh, Matsushima took out Mapimpi pretty much around the neck and it was just a fair contest, as opposed um called by Wayne Barnes in this one. So I think we've definitely seen a shift in the refereeing. And I don't know if it's just the people they've actually chosen to referee these games are the more lenient are the more guys willing to let them play a bit more and are less willing to call up everything or involve the TMO at every section I think that's that might be part of it I I actually like the way Wayne Barnes refereed this certainly the Matawira tackle like it was clear it was right in front of him it went past the horizontal he didn't drive him into the ground he obviously realized late in the process of making the tackle what was happening. And, you know, you saw him immediately on the ground. He's rolled over and sort of put his hands up and he certainly certainly played like it was a, a mistake and he, and he hadn't intended on doing it. Mm. I think if you played that out, it was pretty likely it was going to be a, around the yellow card. I don't think it would have been a red because it wasn't sort of a pick up and lift and drive and, you know, really finish him off sort of thing. So... I appreciated that Wayne Barnes just went, no, nope, that's a yellow, see you later. That kept the game moving. I think the commentators were a bit surprised that it would have been given, oh, there it is, okay, get on with it. Um, the contests in the air, I think you can you can analyse those to death and it's always painful. They slow it down. They judge all sorts of things, which you know, two players jumping up for the ball can't really control every factor. There's always going to be some risk. Um, if you're If you're the one who's, um, chasing the ball, I think there's a bit more incumbency on you to make sure you don't do anything dangerous because generally the player who's being kicked to 
has has been able to set themselves and 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 make a pretty good effort to make the catch. If both players have their eyes up on the ball the entire time, they've got hands up reaching. We see we see short guys catch a ball on their chest um, over the top of a uh, or in line with a guy who's taller and reaching up. So you've got to put your hands somewhere. If you look like you're in the contest and the and the guys collide and and they go down, as long as someone doesn't go and land on their head because someone really threw a shoulder in. I kind of think that's just what those contests are like. And I was okay with Wayne Barnes letting it play through because to me, each time, whether it was Michael Leach or uh, the the contest on Mpimpi, they had their eyes on the ball. They had their hands up. They were both making some reasonable effort. I I think that's about as good as you can ask for. Yeah, I've got to agree. Wayne Barnes definitely was a fair sort of moderator in this game and he was equal on both sides. Who do you reckon were the best two refs? Because we can, oh, I, I imagine um, we would expect that two of these refs would come on to do the semis and maybe one of the other two would get the final, usually. If this is the best four, they're going to give the best three of this four the next three games. Well, I mean, you've got the I don't think there was any... three versus four playoffs as well. So you, you have four games left in this competition. Um, okay. So well, who assume... do you think who do you think gets the who do you think gets the the grand final based on ref's form? Who's who gets the the championship match? I actually think it might be Wayne Barnes. So who we've got? We've got Wayne Barnes, Jaco Piper, um, what's his name? Garcia. Garcia, and um, who was that fourth one? Who did the New Zealand game? Did Nigel Owens do one? Yeah, Nigel Owens. Okay, yeah. So Nigel Owens did the. So, so I kind of think, I think there's a strong chance that Nigel Owens does does the final, but I actually think Wayne Barnes is is worthy of it. Yako Piper is probably going to be a little bit under the microscope, maybe unfairly after getting uh, photos taken with some Welsh supporters um, who were throwing people. their elbows around. I think Yako's. Yako's actually got his elbow up in the photo, like, and they're all kind of smiling, and they. I don't know. It it suggested that somehow Yako was in cahoots with the Welsh, and this is all you know a big conspiracy. I don't think anyone's really seriously pushing that. I think they've just acknowledged that yeah, it doesn't look that great. That might just tarnish Yako uh, a little bit to to keep him out of the the final game. I, I would expect it's Nigel Owens, but I think Wayne Barnes is actually probably deserving. I think I've mm. I've appreciated his approach to these matches most out of anyone. Look, I. I don't actually think that it should be different people. Like, I think that we should get the two best now. So probably Wayne Barnes, Nigel Owens for this weekend. And then really it should be who they think ref smoother then goes on to the final. I don't know if it should just be a split evenly um, between the four of them again. I understand that. But I think in World Rugby's eyes, they want to demonstrate that they've got more than a stable of two competent refs. Um, you know, this isn't the Rugby rugby World Refereeing Championships. It's not like the, the best guy keeps getting to go on to the best game. I think they picked their, their preferred four. Maybe even those four guys are settled in their teams with their assistants and the TMOs. Um, and those will be the units traveling and uh, running those games henceforth. Mm. Um, but I mean, look, I think I think certainly the the referees that get picked for this weekend, and if one of those two goes on to get picked in the in the final itself, 
should be, should be feeling pretty good and uh, is probably getting well rewarded um, for running those games and, and hopefully mm. they're a good contest with, with you know good decision making through the rest of the tournament because it was looking a bit ugly there particularly with all those Frenchmen little bit of bias in there um, never let's just look at the semi-finals so we have England New Zealand on Saturday 7pm kickoff Australian time um, both of these games out of Yokohama and then the Welsh play the Springboks on Sunday evening an hour later kickoff 8pm Australian time for this and two games that are Going to be pretty damn good um, in the end. I think the England-New Zealand game is probably shaping up as a must-see clash out of these two. I think uh, just based on the Welsh sort of faltering a little bit in that quarterfinal, we'd expect the Springboks to come out and win this. But who are your key players in this Kiwi-England um, game? Who do you think needs to stand up first, maybe for England, to, to give them a shot at taking down this Kiwi team that they've always struggled against? Um for the English, I think the forwards are reasonably well matched. Like the forwards in the New Zealand pack are really quite good skill forwards. But we're probably uh, overlooking the English back row a little bit. I think that's quite a reasonable um, spread of skills there too. So those guys need to really match up to what is, you know, world rugby's probably best back row, maybe aside from maybe the Springboks too, um, being, being in that contest. But... Uh, the back rowers for the English, they're going to need to dominate at the rucks. They're not going to, mm. they're not going to be able to stop Aaron Smith from getting nice fast ball every time. But certainly they need to slow it down because, again, you've got world class uh, edge men out in the back three for New Zealand, and that's where I think the biggest contest will be. We know people like Johnny May and Anthony Watson are, are talented guys, but are they quite as good as as the All Blacks wingers when those guys are getting put in perfect position and nice flat passes? Um, the the challenge of of keeping the All Blacks outside backs quiet starts at the ruck, and that's going to be the English back rowers uh, trying to dominate there and, and certainly slow it down as much as they can. Yeah, I completely agree there. England are going to have to do what the All Blacks do to every other team, which is make an absolute mess of opposing rucks and make sure that it's always a bit slower, it's always a little bit messy, they're never quite getting on that front football because when England get on front football, I think they are they can look very dangerous. You get um, Farrell moving forward to Alangi, breaking the line, and if you're getting a couple of phases of quick ball out there, that's when their danger men like Johnny May, uh, like Daly at the back there, can really cause havoc. But the All Blacks are just so good at slowing that down, and that's both in offense and defense, England are going to have to slow them down and also just try and counter that sort of messiness that the All Blacks seem to induce in every game. Yep, that's that's absolutely the truth. They are the masters of disruption in the ruck. And uh, so then to talk about New Zealand, I guess I, I think the forwards are pretty well set. I think they're a good unit. They're set pieces strong. Um, do what you can against them, but really you're going to be focused on getting some nice, quick, short ball out of the lineouts, not mucking around with the scrums too much. Uh, I don't think either team... Maybe the English, but I don't think either team are really looking to have a grinding, scrumming kind of um, penalty fest. Like I don't think mm. either one's going to see such a such a discrepancy in the abilities of, of the other other pack that they think they're going to win a whole lot of penalties. It may go that way, but I don't see it starting off that way. Um, the New Zealand centres, as you discussed, like there's been a bit of rotation, a bit of change. I think if if the 
English can get their own quick ball, um, then to to get their outside backs lined up against the All Blacks outside backs and stretch to make sure that the outs uh, that the forwards for the the All Blacks can't get there to support. I think that's where they're going to make their make their hay. So Tuolangi crashing the ball up through the middle. If he can break a tackle and draw Bowden in or the winger in to make the the cover tackle, then that opens up the wing for the real dynamos that the English play. So I think that's probably where they're going to make their uh, best opportunities. They need to have really, really um, strong running lines through the center of the All Blacks, hit the holes, try and make breaks, draw in that extra player and then move the ball quickly into the space. Do you uh, foresee the English going... The All Blacks won't put up with a big grinding game. Yeah, I agree. Do you foresee the English going back to George Forward at 10 and um, moving Tuolangi out to 13? I mean, we saw them play with Tuolangi and Slade in this game. Slade didn't particularly have a very impressive game. Quite a few errors from him, probably through lack of match play. Um, Do you think they stay with the same or do they go with the two kicking options to try and play a bit more territory game? Difficult to say. I, I guess it, it would be nice for them to know who the All Blacks are intending on playing because the All Blacks have such depth and variety in who they can select. They can really tailor their, their centre field to the, the type of game plan that, that they want to take to the English pack. So I'm not really sure. I, I think you know this is the second time, I think, in two consecutive World Cups that George Ford's been sort of snubbed and dropped out uh, late in the tournament. Uh, in in preference of having Farrell there at 10. Uh, Will they keep on with it? It does kind of feel like that was an Australian-specific tactic. Um, So, look, I think Ford probably comes back in. I'm going to hedge a bit. I think Ford probably comes back in. Mm. I don't think they'll be as worried about um, bigging up the centre pairing. Um, The All Blacks, really, they probably only have maybe Sonny Bill would be like the big crash ball runner that they might be concerned with running at George Ford a lot. But I doubt, I just don't think Sonny Bill will be the starting starting 12. Yeah, I, maybe I, he comes off the bench. I, I think it's Anton Leonard-Brown's kind of locked that up at the moment. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think Anton Leonard-Brown and Good Hugh have just looked so good together in these last couple of games that it's very it'd be very hard to split them up. Um, even though, obviously, Sonny Bill's always, always has that um, ability to make an impact and create something out of nothing. And I agree with you. I think they'll go back to George Forward as well, partly just because I don't think they were too impressed with what Slade did um, on the weekend. I mean, he did pick pick up that loose pass from Pocock and run and do the grubber for Johnny May's second try. But other than that, he had quite a few errors in this game. And I definitely think you're right with the back row that's probably a little bit um, unknown from England with Underhill and Curry there, but... Those are two fetcher players, the way, same way Australia plays, but they seem to have the right balance with what they're doing there. Um, and they're going to be a huge sort of part of this game if England want to take a win away from here. But still predicting the All Blacks to take this. Um, I think I almost see it going a little bit the same way as what happened to Ireland. I think the All Blacks are going to get a couple of early scores and England are going to find it really tough going to get anything going in this game. Yeah, the All Blacks just don't leak that many points. Like I'd like to say that both teams will, you know, find a couple of opportunities early in in the game in the first half, and it might look, you know, All Blacks by three to seven by half time, and then they just sort of run off with it because they can just play any minutes. They can score just before half time, just after 
they never they never get caught napping. Um, so, but yeah, but it's, it's really hard to see the English team or any other team, uh, except probably South Africa is my only tip um, that I think can really match it with the All Blacks. They're, they're just such a dominant force. I think they'll get through to the semis. Well, Ireland's 14 points was the most points that any team has scored against the All Blacks in this World Cup so far. So 14 points being the most that you've conceded is it's not a bad res- result already. Absolutely. And again, benchmark for, for all other sides. I doubt any other side can claim that in this tournament. Yeah. Though by the same token, just looking at England as well, Australia scored the most, but that's 16 points. So both teams have stood up defensively, but... Yeah, still got to take New Zealand in this one. And the other semi-final we're obviously looking at, the Welsh versus the Springboks. And this is going to be another tough one. Wales obviously needing to stand up, do a little bit more than they have in that game against France. They're probably not going to have the man advantage for the majority of this one. And the Welsh, do they have the size to stand up to this big South African pack? I think the Welsh particularly struggled without Jonathan Davies against the French. We, we didn't mention that before, but that was a late-ish change. It was an unplanned change. Uh, they had to had to make do without Jonathan Davies, and I think that left them a big hole, which the French uh, outside centre exploited really well. And while Le Arm isn't maybe quite as dynamic uh, in the same position, if they're still without Davies, and, I'm, and at this point I'm not sure if he's, if he's healthy enough to come back, um, I think that leaves a real hole for the for the Welsh side, and to be honest, I think this is probably only going one way, and and it could be quite one sided. Um, Dan Big has fought through a lot of late contact and a lot of pressure um, to stay, you know, there and, and and up front for the for the Welsh and keep them in the game mm. with a lot of points. But I think the South Africans are just such a well oiled machine at the moment. They're so big, they're so fast. Um, they're almost like a bigger, stronger French. And the French model really shook up this Welsh team. And if it's the same 15 selected, I think the same model executed with more consistency uh, by the by the South Africans bodes very poorly for the Welsh. Yeah, I have to agree. And especially if the Springboks make the changes like bringing Malcolm Marks on to start, we saw how... Impressive he was guiding the Springboks Mall in, late in that game versus Japan. And if Willie LaRue wipes the butter off his hands because he left a lot of opportunity out there versus Japan. And if those two start to fire, really you've got the center of the field um, getting marks and people like the big second rows, Edzabeth running through. They're always going to start making meters. And then if you get Pollard to Willie LaRue, that combination starting to go unleashing people like Cheslin Colby, Mapimpi. We've seen how quick and dynamic they've been. Yeah, I've got to agree. I think it's only going one way here. I, I can't see uh, the Welsh really with a chance in this one. I think I think the Springboks are going to score 30 in this game and I just can't see the Welsh team getting above the teens. And the Japanese side that's that's just been beaten by the South Africans, that was a really strong, dynamic team. They brought a lot of variation. They brought a lot of different attacking styles. And, and the South Africans really closed that up pretty effectively. I, I don't think there's an obvious weakness for the for the Welsh to exploit. They have a strong tactical kicking game. But do they, do they have the attacking prowess um, as of some of these other teams? I feel like 
a guy like George North, we haven't really seen him really dominate in this mm. World Cup. He used to be such a formidable winger. You'd really be concerned who you selected to match up with him. Uh, I guess we would be expecting it's probably, who would it be? Would it be Mapimpi? Yeah. Has North been playing yeah, at the been right playing wing? Right wing. So, so Mapimpi versus George North. Yeah. So, I mean, that's potentially, that's an opportunity. But um, look, Mapimpi's come from being the, what was it? The Kings, the Southern Kings winger way, way, way back years ago in Super Rugby and, and you know, coming out of obscurity. And he's now first first choice South African winger. The guy isn't a pushover. Um, I think that's possibly an area the Welsh will target. But George North needs to show more than he's shown so far for them to really exploit that. That's right. And the other thing is they have to be able to get the ball out to him, um, which we know with the South Africans uh, sort of rush out and in defence, it's very hard to then get the ball out to your wingers and you're, you're caught almost having to try and do these chips over the side and hope that you can target him well to try and get in behind the defence. But it's very difficult to be precise enough, even with uh, the kicking game of someone like Dan Bigger. He's going to be facing a lot of pressures, pressure from these big South African forwards rushing up on him. And if he's getting a few physical hits on him after a while, I'm not sure he's going to be able to keep very accurate with some of these kicks. Oh, he's had a tough World Cup. He's been targeted a lot. He caught that huge knock uh, late in the game against the... Was that against us? No, Fiji. That might have been against one of the Minnow Nations. Fiji. That was against Fiji, um, that's right, yeah. Though he was taken out by Liam Williams, I believe. Um, he's a bit of friendly fire. Yeah, he's, it was friendly fire. But but like he's he's been battered and, and he's still looking pretty solid. But you know what? The, the last team I'd want to be up against after being knocked around a little is is a South African team that does nothing but knock people around. Yeah. That's their that's their modus operandi. So uh, good luck Wales. You're my you're my spiritual team for the Northern Hemisphere. Um, but I, I think the South African side will be far too strong for you this World Cup. That's right. So we're postulating that we're gonna see a rematch of the first game uh, in the New Zealand pool, New Zealand South Africa, the rematch and I got to say, I think that's probably the best outcome that we can see. These two sort of nations coming back together after a little bit of a disappointing showing from South Africa early. I think it's going to be a very different game if they get to come back up against each other uh, in two weeks' time. Yeah, aside from the New Zealand England game this weekend, which is the only alternative final, I, I think would would sort of be deserving of you know headline billing. Um, and th- and this South Africa New Zealand combination making the final is exactly what are, what I expected at the start of the cup, and I was tipping at the time South Africa to uh, actually overcome New Zealand on the repeat match. So we'll see how they form how they perform this weekend. We'll see if hopefully neither team picks up any injuries. We want to see them at full strength going at it. Mm-hmm. Um, if if South Africa lift another gear I f- again, I feel like they've just built and built and built really well over the car- last couple of years. Now over the World Cup, they've they've seen what they're up against early, and they've just built and and overcome all the the wave of expectation and hope for the Japanese. If they can crush the Welsh, they'll be on a on a huge high and a roll of momentum coming into the final. Absolutely, that's coming to us this Saturday and Sunday, the World Cup Rugby 2019 semi-finals. We'll be watching, and I'm sure you guys will be watching as well. Only two more weeks to go in this World Cup. And then it's another 
lot of misery the quiet months until we get more super rugby coming back to us in february so got to make the most of it while it's still there as always jump on it onto instagram onto facebook onto twitter we're there at running rugby podcast or running rugby pod on twitter and make sure to download us spotify itunes uh, and apple Podcasts everywhere you listen to podcasts we're there as well thanks everyone for tuning in again keep on running Run.